So once again, playing out, same spiral, right? The people, they, they, they call on the name of the Lord. The Lord delivers them. The people walk with the Lord for a little while. That judge who delivered them dies. And what happens? They get sucked right back into those same old sins. And it seems like each time they get sucked a little deeper into the sin. And so it says here that the Lord gave them over to the Midianites. Now the Midianites were an interesting group. Uh, Midian was one of Abraham's sons. Sons, who do we think of? You can, you can say it, you don't have to be quiet. Isaac and Ishmael, right? Those are the two main sons that we usually think of. And these other ones kind of get lost in obscurity. But we learn in Genesis chapter 25 that after Sarah died, now remember Abraham's an old man at this point, but he gets remarried and he has six more sons. And Midian is one of those sons. And the Midianites, they are the descendants of this son Midian. And so they're sort of cousins of the Israelites. They're another Semitic people group there in that region. And when we talk about the Midianites, you know, they aren't like a lot of the other people groups that we talk about. They weren't an established kingdom with a, with a specific territory, right? The Midianites were more of a, of a confederation of, of people groups with, with similar political and religious motivations, and they had a, a common ancestry, and oftentimes the Midianites, they would, they would band together for these, for these military campaigns. And so for seven years, the Midianites are working together against the people of Israel. And it says in verse two, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of the Midian, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. So you see the situation here, right? It says that the Midianites overpowered the Israelites. And some of the translations say, like the NIV says, because Midian was so oppressive. The level of oppression that it would take to cause a whole nation to flee their homes and to live in forts out in the woods, to live in caves out in the woods, right? This was a, this was a rough situation. And from the context of the chapter, it, it doesn't seem like they were living full time in these caves. We'll see later on that uh, Gideon had a, a village that he resided in. But it seems like it was sort of a, these were like places that they would flee to. Places that they would go to protect themselves and hide away when, when, when the Midianites would come. A, you know, a, little, a little hole in the ground where they could secret themselves away. But look what verse 3 notes. It says, whenever the people would plant their crops, right, whenever harvest time would come, guess what happened? Right, the Midianites, they would make an appearance. They would show up and they would take the crops. So the people, they're laboring, they're out there in the field, they're, they're planting their crops, they're tending to their harvests, only to see the Midianites come and steal all their food away. They're seeing all of their crops consumed by somebody else. Imagine how 
disheartening that would be. I remember once, I was probably eight years old, we were living in Eastern Oregon, and somebody gave me this little, a teeny little strawberry plant. And I would water it out there and I was watching it grow. And you know, I got one little blossom on it and a little strawberry burst forth. And I was watching over the weeks as the strawberry grew and it began to turn red. And one day it was ripe. And I remember this vividly. So when I get home today, I'm going to eat that strawberry. I'm going to, the fruits of my labor, I'm going to eat that strawberry. I got home there's a big old black crow sitting there. He ate my strawberry. The fruits of my labor. I remember how disheartened I was. I can't imagine how the Israelites must have felt at this point. Verse four, it says, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. And they laid waste to the land as they came. So the Midianites would show up and look at the language here. It says that they would devour the produce of the land says that they would leave no sustenance for Israel. It says that they would come like locusts in number. You can kind of just see the imagery, right? This, just this, this swarm kind of coming up over the hill and eating everything in their path. And, and that's exactly what would happen. The Midianites would show up and it wasn't just the warriors showing up to, to vanquish the land. Everybody would come. The husbands, the wives, the kids, the grandmas and grandpas, their goats, their sheep, their camels. Everybody would come and they would just sort of camp out and they would consume every resource. They would consume everything that was available and they would move on when it was gone. Now, man, that would just be, it would be so disheartening, wouldn't it? seeing that happen to your land over and over and over again. And I want to note something else here. It says they and their camels. Now, the Midianites were among the first people to use camels in warfare. And from what we can kind of glean from history, oftentimes there would be a couple guys on these camels, right? And they would come through and the guys would be sitting up there with their, with their bows and arrows and their spears. And they're so high up that they're out of reach of the soldiers. So this was a, a very formidable weapon. We talked last week about chariots and how they were sort of the, the, um, the tanks of that day, right? If chariots were the tanks, these would be the Apaches, right? These are the helicopters flying over, striking people from above, and you can imagine these, these Israelite farmers out on the battlefield and all they've got is their, is their ox goads and their shovels and their rakes. And these guys come swarming in on camels with bow and arrows. It would have been terrifying. And, and on top of that, there's nothing that the people could do about it. All they could do is watch this happen. And, and it produces, we're going to see in the next verse, this sense of just desperation. 
It says in verse six, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. The people were brought low because of Midian. Right? The Midianites and their oppression brought the Hebrew people to this low state of existence. Right? They're humiliated. They're forced to hide out in caves and in dens, holes in the ground. All of their resources being stolen away. And finally, after seven years of, of going through this over and over and over again, finally the people cry out to the Lord. Finally, the people cry out in desperation to God. And it says in verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So after the people finally have enough, they finally come to the end and, and, and they cry out to the Lord. The Lord sends a prophet, and we don't know who this prophet is. He's sort of an, an unknown prophet here. And he brings a message to the people. And he says, look, remember who it was who led you out of Egypt? It was me, says the Lord. Remember who delivered you from slavery? That was me too. Remember who set you free from your oppressors? It was me again, says the Lord. Remember who drove the people out of the land before you? He says, ditto. That was me again. It was all me. He says, and I told you guys. He said, look, I am the Lord your God. You're not to fear the gods of the Amorites. You're not to go after the gods of the Amorites. But you guys just won't listen. You refuse to obey. No matter how many times I remind you. No matter how many times I discipline you, says the Lord, you just won't obey. Any of you guys' parents sound familiar at all? Stiff-necked children? Yeah, I talk about my daughter Hannah a lot. I love Hannah to death. She's so beautiful. She's so sweet. She walks up to me all the time. Just out of the blue, she says, I love you, Daddy. Or sometimes she says, I like you, daddy. Oh, it just melts your heart, right? But also, she is a self-willed, rebellious little reprobate. She's a little sinner. And she is always in trouble. Always getting into stuff. If the door is ever open, she runs out and she runs up the street. There's been a couple times, neighbors have brought her back and we're like, yeah, that's... That's my, that's my daughter. You know, she's just always doing something. And, and, and she's always getting in trouble. And she does this little thing where she pushes out her lower jaw and just this funny little cry that she does. And, and the other day, she, I don't remember what she did, but she did something and I put her in timeout. And when she gets really mad, she does this like 
scream cry. And she's, she was just doing this, just throwing this, just doing this scream cry sitting on the floor. And I was kind of standing behind, behind her and it was kind of a little bit funny to me. So I'm watching her do this and like mid scream cry, she leaps into the air and turns around and looks at me and says, I'm happy now <laughs> and smiles at me. I'm happy now. And um, that's sort of how the Israelites are, isn't it? They're just kind of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. One minute they're, they're walking with the Lord and they're being blessed by God. The next minute they're, they're living in abject rebellion to God. And so we sort of shift gears here in verse 11. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now again, so much of my sermons relate to my kids because, you know, the Lord has taught me so much through my kids. So my wife and I, you know, whenever we're going different places, we're always having to move the car seat from one car to the other. And I don't know why up to this point we've never just bought another car seat, but we haven't. So it's always having to move from my wife's Land Cruiser to my truck and back and forth. And so recently my parents gave us a car seat and I don't know where they got it from, but it's a Batman car seat. And it's not like a Batman car seat, like it's got Batman print on the fabric. It's got like a full Batman head on it and the cup holders are arms. And so we just recently got this. And this morning I'm on my way to church and it's like, about six, it's still pitch black out. I back my truck out of the driveway and I look into the rear view mirror. Batman's hiding in my back seat. <laughs> Scared the heck out of me. <laughs> now listen, I'm, I'm not proud to say this, but that's not even the first time it's happened. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna cut its head off. But anyway, anyway, this angel of the Lord just sort of shows up and sits down under the terebinth tree. And I wonder if Gideon was like that, just like, oh, did he just appear or was it more of a, a natural appearance? Did he walk up and sit down? I don't know. But anyway, the angel of the Lord shows up. And you probably remember when we see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, when it says the angel of the Lord, typically it's a reference to what is referred to as a Christophany or a theophany. And that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, right? An appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, remember Jesus, God the Son, right? He, he didn't pop into existence at his conception there in Nazareth, right? When Mary got pregnant. He has eternally existed. And we see throughout the Old Testament, he makes a number of appearances. He shows up a few different times. Remember, we, we talked about this before earlier in Judges. When he, he showed up with Daniel in the lion's den. A, a number of times, he just sort of shows up and engages his people in the Old Testament. And that's what we see here. 
the Lord shows up. And what does he do? Just sits down, chills underneath the terebinth tree for a while. And all of a sudden he's going <clears> to, <throat> Gideon. And we find Gideon at this point, it says he's in the, in the wine press threshing wheat. Now, our culture obviously has, has moved away from being a largely agrarian society, right? And so I'm going to go ahead and assume that most of us here have never threshed wheat. Anybody threshed wheat here? Jess raised her hand, but she was lying. Um, any of you guys ever pressed grapes into wine? Peter and Belinda have. They're now in AA. Um, <laughs> so, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know where these things come from. Right, so, unless you've heard someone else teach on these passages you probably miss a lot of the significance of what's taking place here. Typically, when you harvest wheat, you know, it comes out, you know, it grows on those little stalks and they kind of pull it off the stalk, but it's kind of like a kernel of corn, right? You have the wheat and it's got this, this husk around it, this shell around it. And so what they would do is they, they take the wheat and they lay it down and they, and they stomp on it or they roll something heavy over it and it breaks the husks off of the kernel. Now, I, I hate popcorn because, you know, you get those little things stuck in your teeth. And for the same reason, they had to separate the, the, these husks called the chaff from the wheat because it would kind of corrupt the food. and It wasn't good to eat like the, like the kernels were. So what they would typically do is they would take all the wheat up onto a, a hilltop or an area that got a good breeze, and they would spread out a big tarp. And as soon as that breeze would start to blow, they would take a, a fork or a scoop, and they would throw the wheat up into the air. And what would happen is the heavy pieces of wheat would fall back down, and as the breeze blew, it would, caught, it would catch that chaff, those little husks, and it would, it would blow them away. It would kind of separate it. And so this is sort of the um, analogy that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 3. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 17, remember he's talking, or John the Baptist is actually talking about Jesus. And he says this, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Right? So John the Baptist here, he's talking about believers and unbelievers, how the Lord is going to separate them, how he's going to bring the wheat into his barn, but the chaff is going to be burnt with this unquenchable fire. Right? He's talking about the final judgment how people are going to be judged based on how they respond to the free gift of grace that's offered to them by the Lord. And this whole analogy that John the Baptist presents here, it's based on this common practice of, of threshing wheat. The second thing I want to note here is Gideon, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, a wine press, typically in that culture in those days, it would be a hole in the ground. It was, a, you know, it was a lot of stone. They would carve out a hole in the stone, and they usually wanted to do it in a protected area. There would be kind of trees surrounding it. And it was kind of the opposite of where they would thresh the wheat. And so we find Gideon here, 
in this, in this low place, in this hidden place, threshing out the wheat. Why was he there instead of on top of a hill? Come up there on the hilltop. He didn't want them to see his silhouette up there throwing the wheat into the air and come and, and steal the little bit of food that he had been able to harvest. So he's down in this hole hiding out. And some commentators will say that, you know, Gideon was scared and that's why he's in the wine press instead of the hilltop. I don't know, maybe he was scared. I mean, I suppose I would have been a little bit scared of the Midianites as well. But it might have just been a wise, strategic move, right? It's threshing season. He knows that the enemy are on the lookout, looking for produce to devour. And so he may have just made a strategic decision to stay out of sight. But the one thing we note is that it would have taken a lot more work this way. It would have been a lot harder for him to separate the wheat from the chaff because there wasn't this, this breeze blowing through. But he was willing to do this. He was willing to put in the work here because he had a family to feed, right? He didn't want to lose his produce. So we find Gideon down in this hole and the Lord strows over. And it says this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon, the Lord says, you mighty man of valor, you great warrior, the Lord is with you. Now let me tell you something amazing about this verse. Gideon is down in this hole out of sight hiding away from the Midianites. And the Lord says, you mighty man of valor, you great warrior Gideon. Do we have any indication at all that Gideon was a great warrior at this point? None. Nothing. But he would become one, wouldn't he? The Lord recognized in Gideon the potential that we will see unfold in the coming chapters. The Lord saw something in Gideon that Gideon didn't even know he had. You know, I'm sure when the Lord says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor, he's looking, is there another Gideon here? Right? Surely that's not me that he's talking to. So often, this is how it works. Right? The Lord calls people based on what he sees inside of them. He calls them based on what he knows that they can become. And what I've seen is the Lord calls the most unlikely of characters. Over and over again, we see that in scripture, don't we? Throughout church history, all, all around us, right? The Lord calls people that don't seem like they would be likely candidates. The Lord calls people all the time that don't really measure up to the world's standards. And he does amazing things with them. When the Lord calls people like that, do you know what his number one criteria is? Do you know the number one reason why the Lord calls people like that? They're willing. They're willing to be used. That's who God is looking for. He's not looking for the gifted. He's not looking for the talented. He's looking for the willing. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord. 
Send me. That's what the Lord is looking for. Gideon wasn't a mighty man of valor at this point. But the Lord saw what Gideon could become because he was willing to obey. Because he was willing to do what the Lord asked of him. He says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. I'm reminded of Peter a little bit here as well. Remember Peter? His name originally was, was Simon. And Simon, he was a fairly unstable character, wasn't he? Not really a solid guy. And Jesus says, Peter, or Simon, I'm going to change your name to Peter. Petros, rock. I'm going to change your name to rock because you are going to be a solid guy. And that's anything but how Peter started out. But once the Lord got a hold of Peter, once Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, he did amazing things on behalf of the Lord, didn't he? And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted for us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, this verse is a little bit confusing as it's translated into English because there are several different Hebrew words here that are translated Lord. When Gideon first says, please, my Lord, right? When he says Lord there, it's not Lord in the God sense of the word, right? It's sort of just a term of respect. The Hebrew word is Adon, or sometimes it's Adonai. And this word Ad or Adonai, sometimes it refers to God, but it really just designates one who is of a, um, who's socially superior to you. It might be used of a boss or a mayor or somebody who's wealthy or a king, right? It's sort of the, the Downton Abbey, Lord and Lady sense of the word. So Gideon says, my Lord, if the Lord, and the word he uses for Lord there is a different Hebrew word. It's the word, it's kind of transliterated Yahweh. And it's the personal name of God. And he says, listen, if God is really with us, why is all this happening to us? If God is really with us, why are we struggling so much? If God is really with us, why are, why are our people starving to death? Why are we, we hiding out in the hills? If God is really with us, why are we being cruelly oppressed like this? And he says, look, we've heard all these amazing stories of how God delivered our people from Egypt. We heard all about the plagues and we heard about the Red Sea parting and we heard about the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of clouds. We heard all about the manna and the quail. Why isn't he doing that for us? We've heard tale of all these things. We've heard tale of the, of the goodness of God. Why is he leaving us here to languish? Why is he leaving us here to suffer under the hands of the Midianites? That seems like a reasonable question, doesn't it? Right? If God really loves me, 
Why are all these bad things happening to me? Right? Paul says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? But man, it doesn't always feel like that, does it? It doesn't always feel like God is for us. Now, it's interesting. The Lord doesn't even respond to Gideon directly here. Now, if you've been here for the last few weeks and you've been looking at the book of Judges with us, you kind of know the reason why this is happening, right? You understand why the people keep finding themselves in the midst of all of this, all of this suffering. And there's really a one-word answer for it, right? Sin. The people were suffering greatly because they were sinning, because they were living in rebellion to God. And judgment, it fell on this whole nation. Now, undoubtedly, there were still some good, God-fearing Israelites there, right? But they fell under the same judgment as the rest of the idolatrous Israelites. The whole nation fell under judgment because of the idolatry of most of the people. Now today, and we're, we're surrounded by suffering, aren't we? There's all this heartache. There's all this bad stuff going on around us. Bad stuff happens to us. You know, and ultimately, all the hardships that we endure in life, they're the result of sin. Maybe not your sin, but somebody's sin. I don't know, maybe it is your sin, I don't know. But, right, sometimes bad stuff happens to us because God gave humanity free will. And when we make bad decisions, we and the people around us and the people who come after us have to live with the consequences of those bad decisions. And much of the suffering in the world is the result of the bad decisions, the sinful decisions of the people who came before us. And so often people say, well, why doesn't God intervene? How come God doesn't stop these things from happening? Why doesn't God stop these atrocities? Why doesn't God stop evil? And that sounds like a reasonable question, doesn't it? And we hear that all the time. Every time there's a mass shooting or we learn of some new genocide, why doesn't God stop these things from happening? Why does God allow evil? Well, what is evil? Evil is anything that goes against God, right? Evil is anything that's morally wrong. And so here's the question. How much evil would you like God to stop? Genocide? Well, sure, yeah. Murder? Yeah. Rape? Sure. We want him to intervene in those things. Do we want him to intervene in, in our lying or in our lustful thoughts? Do we want him to stop those things? Right? Where are you okay? Where do you want to draw the line where you want God to stop evil? Right? If you want the Lord to stop evil, you have to be consistent. Either he ends evil or he doesn't end evil. Do you, do you want God to, to, to stop all evil? Or you do, do you only want him to stop the, the evil that interferes with you? Right? Do, you? do you only want him to stop the evil that's going to benefit you? Because here's the reality. If God eliminated all evil, 
he don't have to eliminate you and I. Right? That, that's the reality of the situation. God temporarily allows evil so that humanity can exercise free will to choose to accept him or reject him. Verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Gideon is asking this question. Lord, why are you allowing all this suffering? Why are you allowing all these things to happen? And the Lord turns to Gideon and says, well, how about if you stop philosophizing? How about if you just obey me? How about if you just go and do what I told you to do? He says, how about you go in the might that I will give you and save the people from the hand of Midian? You probably heard the term, the paralysis of analysis, right? The inability to act due to overthinking a problem. You know, people sometimes, they, they get too weighed down by the situation and by the options to ever take action, right? And I think we've all seen this play out. If you ever go to Starbucks and watch the person in front of you order, or you ever go to an ice cream place that gives free samples, right? Nobody can make a decision because they're always trying to figure out what flavor's best. Sort of the same thing here. Gideon is struggling with being stuck considering the options rather than taking action. He's weighing out the pros and the cons. Should I obey? You know, he's, and, and he's so busy thinking about these things, analyzing why these things are happening, that he misses the big picture. He misses the imperative from the Lord. He's missing the fact that the Lord wants to deliver his people through his hand. So the Lord says, Gideon, stop. Just shut up and listen for a minute. I want you to go and deliver my people. And Gideon, he says, how? Have you, have you seen me? You see where I am? I'm hiding here in the wine press. I'm like a little groundhog popping out of his hole, peeking around, his head looked, seeing who's coming. And then I go back down. He says, not only am I weak, but my clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh. Look, I'm the weakest in my clan, and my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and Manasseh was one of the weakest tribes. He says, who am I? How can God send me? You may have heard this before. But in World War II, British planes, they're and American planes, they're flying out, and they're, they're going in their sorties, and they're, they're flying over Nazi Germany. And they would come back, and a lot of the planes were shot up. You know, they have bullet holes in the fuselage, bullet holes in the wings. And so engineers were looking at this problem, and they're trying to figure out where to add armor. Because, you know, an airplane has to be light, so they can't armor the whole airplane. So the, the, the planes are coming back, and they're looking, saying, look, the wings have all these bullet holes in them. The fuselage has all these bullet holes in them. We need to armor those areas to make them more resilient because those are the areas that are getting shot up. And that seems like it makes sense, right? Logic would dictate, look, those planes have those bullet holes there. We need to put armor there. And this mathematician, his name was Abraham Wald. He looks at this and he says, hold on. He says, you're looking at this backwards. 
He says, don't put the armor where you see the bullet holes. He says, put the armor where you don't see any bullet holes. Why? The planes that were shot up in the wings, they made it back. Right? They survived. He says, look at the areas with fewer bullet holes or no bullet holes. The reason the planes were coming back with fewer hits to the engines, or the reason the planes were coming back with fewer hits to the engine is that the planes who got hit in the engines weren't coming back at all. Does that make sense? Right? The planes that were getting hit in the engines, they didn't come back. So they weren't showing shots to those areas. Sometimes we, we can be kind of like those engineers. We look at circumstances on the surface and we base our, our decisions on, on what's right in front of us. We base our decisions on what we can see. And we're not really looking at things from the, from the right perspective. We're not really looking at things from the Lord's perspective. Gideon here, he does exactly that. He says, look, I'm just one guy. And I'm not even a very powerful guy. He says, I'm a weak man from a family of weak men. What can I do? Right? His perspective was off. Here's the thing. When it comes to serving the Lord, it's not who you are. It's whose you are. Who do you belong to? Who's your master? And the Lord said to him, verse 16, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. The Lord says, look, it's true. You might be the weakest person from the weakest clan, but I will be with you. Listen, when God is on your team, or rather when you're on God's team, it doesn't really matter who you're playing against, does it? It doesn't matter how big the enemy is, how many camels he has, how many chariots he has. Just you and God are the superior force. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember Paul is talking about how he, he's got some medical issues, he's got something going on with him and, and he keeps going before the Lord and he says, Lord, heal me. Lord, make me whole. Lord, Lord, restore me. And remember verse nine, the Lord finally responds to Paul and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, some of your translations say, my strength is made perfect in weakness. The Lord's strength is manifested through our weakness. The Lord loves to use weak things. The Lord loves to use weak people of the world so that there's no doubt who's going to get the credit. God calls Gideon and Gideon says, Lord, I'm, I'm unqualified. Right? Sometimes the Lord calls us to do things. Sometimes the Lord calls us to service. Sometimes the Lord calls us to ministry. And our response is, I'm unqualified. You know, I, I, I can't do this on my own. Duh. That's the whole point. God's calling you, someone who can't do it on their own, so there's no mistake about who's actually doing the work. And he, Gideon, said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. 
Now, remember at this point, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, hasn't really fully revealed himself yet. He's just some dude hanging out underneath a tree. But I think Gideon, through the course of this conversation, is starting to get the sense of what's going on. Starting to get the sense of of who he's talking to. And he says, listen, if I have found favor in your eyes, show me a sign, Lord. If you really are who I think you might be, give me a sign. And that seems reasonable, doesn't it? If a stranger shows up, he says, listen, I want you to deliver your nation from this powerful enemy. And I'm going to help you do it. I'm going to empower you. I will be with you. You want to make sure it's really God, right? Make sure some bad drink the night before. Gideon says, well, can you show me a sign? Can you show me that you really are the Lord before I risk the lives of my nation? And then Gideon says, hang on a second. Let me run home and grab something for you. So Gideon went to his house, verse 19, and prepared a young goat, an unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them to him. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. So Gideon did so. So see the picture here. Gideon runs home. Now this wasn't a quick thing. It wasn't like he ran inside, grabbed something off the counter and came back. He runs home and butchers a goat and bakes some cakes. And then he brings it all back. Puts it in a little picnic basket. Now this would have been a huge sacrifice for Gideon, right? At a time when their, when their country's food is being devoured by the Midianites, giving up a goat and a huge sack of flour, that would have been a major sacrifice. So Gideon, he puts in a little basket, and he runs back and he offers it to the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, take the meat, take the cakes, pour the broth over them on this rock. Gideon does so, and verse 21, then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. This is a weird little scene, isn't it? Jesus got a big old stick, kind of touches it and all consumed and then he disappears what then Gideon perceived verse 22 that he was the angel of the Lord and Gideon said alas O Lord God for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face but the Lord said to him peace be with you do not fear you shall not die Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abazarites. So Gideon, he realizes what's going on here. He says, oh man, this was God that I just had this conversation with. This was God sitting under the terebinth tree talking to me. 
says, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And it seems a little odd to us in this first reading. But the Lord has just revealed himself to Gideon. He says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor, right? The Lord has just called Gideon to deliver the people of God. God has just given Gideon this miraculous sign. And now Gideon's worried that he's going to die because he saw God. It's like, didn't you just hear what God told you? Why is he going to kill you right now if he's got this great mission for you? But Gideon, he's all scared. So the Lord says to him, calm down. Calm down, Gid. Don't fear. You're not going to die today. You're going to be just fine. And so Gideon built an altar there, and he called it, the Lord is peace. And I like that. And we're going to close on this verse. It reminds me of that gospel thread that we keep seeing coming up over and over and over again. This idea of, of peace with God and God being the God of peace. Remember, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter eight and verse seven. And he says, we, humanity, in our natural state, we are at war with God. We are at enmity with God, he says. He says this in verse seven. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And I know that we've talked about this a lot, but, but it's so important. Paul says, look, we humanity, apart from Jesus, apart from the cross, he says we are, we're hostile towards God. Without God working in our lives, we're hostile towards the things of God. But when we finally surrender ourselves to his grace, when we surrender ourselves to his mercy, when we surrender ourselves to his loving kindness, when we make peace with God, Paul says, we also get to experience the peace of God. And again, Paul wrote in, writes in Philippians chapter four. And it's such a powerful verse that I can't help quoting it all the time. Right? Especially in times like this that we're living in. Right? We're living in a time when, when so many people are, are anxious. So many people are living in fear. So many people are, don't know what's going to happen next. You know, what, what calamity is going to befall humanity? We're surrounded by wars and rumors of wars, pestilences and famines. I mean, think about the world right now. The crazy stuff going on in Russia. The, the threats that China is making, this, this pandemic that's mostly dying, but who knows if a new strain's gonna come out. It seems like we're on the verge of recession and there's all these predictions of, of food shortages next year. And so many people are left feeling anxious. What's gonna happen? There's this inflation. How am I gonna feed my family? What if there's no food? What if, you know, there, there's talk of nuclear war and all this stuff? And we're, we're left not knowing what the future holds. And Paul says this in Philippians chapter four, verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we are at peace with God, 
we get to experience the peace of God. When we make peace with God, when we're reconciled to the Father, his peace comes into us. His peace guards our hearts and our minds in the midst of all the craziness in the world. And so Gideon, he builds this altar and he calls it the Lord of Peace. I was hoping to finish the chapter today. Maybe we can come back after lunch. And uh, so we're going to end here. But what should we take from this passage? First, it's been said that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. I like that. Just like God didn't save us because we're good, he saved us because he's good. In the same way, God doesn't call us to serve him because we're so gifted and talented and qualified. He calls us and then he gives us the abilities to do the things that he's called us to do. God's strength, Paul says, is manifested through our weakness. And second, as we just talked about, don't fear what's going on in the world. Don't fear all the things that are going on around us. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we, um, we just thank you for this example we're beginning to see here in, in Judges 6 with Gideon. And so encouraged as we see the story unfold in chapter 7 and 8, how Gideon becomes a, he becomes the mighty man of valor. And we pray that you would use his example to encourage us, Lord. You would use his example just to, to build us up in you. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.